did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter. Please take care while listening. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. Every time you thought you were getting towards like the true heart of darkness in this story, some sort of weird detail would pop up. And I think it just fascinated people because we were able to get so deep into these people's lives and they were weird. Just the weirdness was never ending. In December 2019, Lori Vallow landed in Kauai, Hawaii with her new husband, Chad Daybell. To outsiders, they probably looked like the picture of happiness. A couple of honeymooners fresh from Idaho, ready to celebrate their new union. But what they didn't let on was that they were on the run. Suspected of committing a spate of murders, including Vallow's own children. It was a story that stunned from the outset. It's a bizarre case involving murder, doomsday predictions, and two missing children spanning... No one has seen J.J. and Tylee since September, and for months, investigators say Lori Vallow won't cooperate. Vallow's family members say she and her new husband, Chad Daybell, had joined a cult obsessed with the end of the world. Her family believes her involvement with the Doomsday Network may be involved somehow. Where are your kids? No comment? They've been missing for four months. You have nothing to say? Where are your children? How did a suburban mom become an accused murderer? Did she really believe that the world was coming to an end and that her children were zombies? There's no clear, singular way of looking at this. It's, it's a mess, it's complicated, and people are fundamentally a mystery, especially when they do things like this. Sarah Trelevin is a reporter whose podcast, Madness of Two, unpacks this bizarre story. And just one quick disclosure. I did work with Sarah on this podcast. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad that you uh, indicated that I'm allowed to mention we worked on this together. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to pretend we've never met before. <laughs> no, we've met. We spent many hours fixing, writing, uh, talking about this insane story that really, really struck a chord. I mean, this was huge before we certainly got involved. You certainly got involved with it. Why do you think it was such a spectacular spectacle? I think there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, I think on the face of it, uh, it's a spectacular tragedy. You know, I think there were a number of uh, dead bodies. There were two children involved. Um, and I think there's always particular media interest when children uh, are are missing and, and found murdered. But I think that there are a lot of other elements to this story that really kept people's attention because people remained enraptured by, by the story for months, if not years. And, 
you know, it has all these various elements. It's kind of got a little something for everyone. It's got, you know, murder. It's got lust. It's got religious extremism. Um, you know, there was talk of these kids being turned into zombies. Um, and, you know, at the center of this was this very pretty white woman, which who is a surprising protagonist in these kinds of stories. Um, so I think that was a lot of it. And then I think the other part of it is like, this story has fundamentally goofy elements that you don't see in a lot of true crime stories, you know? And I think every time you thought you were getting towards like the true heart of darkness in this story, some sort of weird detail would pop up. And I think it just fascinated people because we were able to get so deep into these people's lives and they were weird. Just the weirdness was never ending. Let's dive into the weirdness and let's talk about Lori Vallow because she is really the main person in the story. I know Chad Daybell, her fourth husband, am I right? And remember, fifth, I couldn't remember if there was four or five. Yeah, uh, is obviously really fascinating as well. But Lori was sort of the thing that really pulled everybody in. So tell me, who who is Lori Vallow? Lori Ballow, um, when this story broke, was a woman living in Arizona near Phoenix in her mid-40s. She um, was blonde and thin, former cheerleader. Um, you know, she sort of had been described as the perfect Mormon mom, very giving and caring. Um, she had been a hairdresser and a fitness instructor. She had, you know, been in the Miss Texas pageant. And... All of those sort of very superficial uh, signifiers masked a much darker interior that close family members started to clue into not long before the kids disappeared, but I think surprised many, many people. Um, and, you know, she has always been the center of this story, much more than Chad. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think he is sort of eminently forgettable. Um, there's something about Chad that is like, peak midlife. And Lori was this much more kind of glamorous figure, but she was also crucially a mother. And I think part of the reason that people were so obsessed with this story is she bucked all expectations for what we believe a mother is supposed to be. And like I said, Chad was husband number five. We don't have time to go through it all. She got married young, had one child, and that ended young, all the reasons why probably very early marriages end. Uh, but can we talk about the ones that she had after that? Because they were more spectacular and they, we now recognize, became more violent. Mm -hmm. So Lori actually had two very early marriages. Her first was in high school, which I believe was annulled. Um, her second marriage, there's very little information about what happened during that second marriage. We know that individual is Colby, her oldest son's father. But to to this date, I've never seen an interview with him. Uh, he gets referenced very rarely. It was a relatively short marriage. Um, and then we move on to husband number three, Joe Ryan. Joe Ryan, who is Tylee's father, uh, was much older than Lori. He was quite successful. You know, he built them this large home near Austin, um, they had on the face of it quite a nice life. They they were sort of the picture of success. And apparently they were very much in love and Joe was very doting. But we do know from sources that it was a very turbulent marriage. And Joe's 
sister Annie tells this one particular anecdote where she's at the family's house one night and she's got her kids there and it's kind of a jumble of family as happens when relatives visit. And it's a storm and something in the house is leaking. And, you know, it's not ideal. They've just had this big expensive house built. But Joe loses his mind, just is furious and yelling and he's going to kill the contractor. And that triggers something in Lori, this extreme fear. And she desperately tries to get the kids away from Joe and move them to a different part of the house. That makes Annie think that A, this is far from the first time Joe has exhibited this kind of temper and B, that maybe it has even in the past escalated from there. So we do know that there's that relationship was not good. And then it turns much, much worse when Lori um, makes allegations that Joe Ryan has uh, molested both Coldy, her son, and Tylee, Joe's daughter. And it becomes a very, very nasty separation and divorce. And uh, Tyler becomes estranged from her father. And then along comes Charles Vallow. And together they adopt a boy named JJ. Yeah, they again have what appears to be a nice life. I have also heard from other people that Charles could be volatile. There are accounts of Lori taking the kids to go stay in a hotel from time to time because she didn't feel like she could be around Charles. Charles is broadly seen as a decent guy um, by friends and family members and even the people in Lori's orbit, including her family. Um, and crucially, Charles is really, really central to the story, not just because he becomes one of the victims in it, but because he is probably the only person who really saw what was coming. I mean, you know, as much as Chad styles himself as a prophet, Charles was the one who knew how dangerous this was going to get. And he begged people, including the police, including family members, to listen to him. So what's going on tonight? She's lost her mind. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to say it. We're LDS. She thinks she's a resurrected being and a, a god and member of the 144,000. She's come to Jesus is coming next year. She took all the money out of her bank account today. My truck has gone from the airport. She went to the airport. And, and then he ended up dead, shot by Alex, Lori's brother. And the police now allege that this was a conspiracy by Alex, Chad and Lori. So let's go to the relationship between Charles and Lori, because Lori was always religious, a Mormon. He converted uh, into the religion for her, but he started to see an escalation of extremism. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, Lori was always religious, but Lori was kind of like a bikini Mormon. You know, she was a hot mom. She was like a hot Mormon, you know, and it was clear that <laughs> she... She subscribed to many of the teachings of the church and and that her faith was valuable to her. But she was like very kooky, I would say. You know, there's this one anecdote about Lori went on Wheel of Fortune. And she told everyone that God told her she was going to be on Wheel of Fortune. Hi, how you doing, Lori? Uh, I'm Lori good, how are Ryan you? from Austin, Texas, okay. a hairstylist in Austin. And, you know, talking to her sister in law, Annie, Annie was like, well, you know, she just filled out an application and she's an extremely attractive woman. Like, I wouldn't attribute this to God. It's just, you know, that's what happens when very attractive women apply to be on game shows. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Lori had this really 
interesting sense of this divine providence, but she attached it to odd things. Um, over time, that shifts. And a lot of people attribute the shift to her um, breakup with Joe Ryan, the, the turbulence in that relationship, the allegations of molestation, that Lori had hit sort of a breaking point in her life. She was feeling incredibly powerless. So she increasingly turned towards the church. And she started spending more time in temple. Um, she would go there often and just sit alone and sort of think about all of the things that had happened to her. And she also started gravitating towards these more extreme groups, uh, groups like Preparing the People, um, which are an interesting combination of, um, you know, they, they put on these symposiums where they talk about the end of the world. Uh, you know, when is the second coming? How do we prepare for it? What, what will it look like? And then these very literal preparations, like what do you need to have in your basement when Jesus comes? That's sort of like the gist of many of these things. So it's through this community that Lori meets Chad Daybell. And who's Chad? So Chad is uh, in his, when they meet, he's around 50. He's, um, or maybe even late forties. He's got five kids. He's been married to his wife, Tammy for three decades. Um, you know, they live in a little tidy, but modest bungalow in Rexburg, Idaho. Uh, they moved there because Chad believed this is where God wanted him to be for the second coming. For years, he has run a publishing business. Um, he's sort of semi-employed. You know, he makes a little bit of cash publishing books about Doomsday and the Second Coming and these kind of lightly fictionalized versions of events. Um, you know, his wife, Tammy, is a teacher. Most people think, up until he meets Lori, that they're relatively content. They have a nice family life and they're devoted to each other. And then once Chad and Lori meet, that starts to change. Because there is a instant, quote unquote, spiritual connection between them, right? Right. And people were really, really, um, they really underscored the spiritual connection. <laughs> you know, that Chad and Lori met, it was like instant. I suspect on Chad's part, it was more than a spiritual connection or more than a spiritual attraction. But people always say, you know, oh, and Lori was immediately attracted to him. Spiritually, I mean, you know. <laughs> but it, it clearly was, you know, very soon more than that because, like, they were very quickly, like, teenagers dry humping in the backseat of a car, like, on it and very fast. And so this affair goes on. And like you mentioned, she doesn't marry him, him until her fourth husband is dead. And that is under, even before the police narrowed in on them, it was pretty shaky and suspicious circumstances that led to Charles's death. Yeah. I mean, it all starts to get really suspicious. I mean, on one hand, these are people, and if you look back at the sequence of events, they tried to cover their tracks. They just did it incredibly poorly. You know, just it's just like these people clearly meet and fall in at least lust. And then a series of unfortunate events in their orbit uh, take place, and it's all extremely suspicious to anyone who might want to take a look at it. So uh, Charles Vallow dies, and the circumstances under which he dies is Lori is in a new rental home in Arizona, and um, Charles shows up to take JJ to school. Because they had separated. They had separated. They had separated this place. They were not divorced, but they were living in separate places. And uh, I think on quite poor terms. 
So Charles shows up. He's there to pick up JJ. Some sort of fight breaks out. Lori's brother, Alex, is also there. And the narrative that he tells police is that Charles went and got a bat and first threatened Tylee and Lori with it and then hit Alex over the head with the bat. And at, at that point, Alex insists he had no choice but to shoot Charles. He shoots Charles. Charles is dead. Police come. Alex has some sort of small contusion at the back of his head um, that would support the idea that something had struck him or, you know, there was some something had happened. Um, police show up. Lori and Tylee eventually return. They somewhat corroborate his version of events. Police don't see any need to investigate further. Later that day, Lori has a pool party. Again, anyone who wanted to look, it's incredibly suspicious, but I don't know whether it was like the religiosity, the level of hubris and all of these things is so enormously high. I mean, there is tape of that interview between when the cops show up to talk to Lori about Charles and we run it in the podcast and you can tell he's kind of got a crush on her. Like he's taken with her. Yeah. The cop. Oh, that's right. How long have you lived here? Like three weeks. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. That's why the neighbors took us. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> like... Sorry. <laughs> Are you working? That's right. And it's it does not sound like a very hard-nosed investigation. At one point, he talks about to Tylee, who at that time is like 16, about how she has these beautiful blue eyes. Blonde, too. You guys, I'm going to list you as a blonde young lady here. And then blue eyes? Yeah. You have very blue eyes. That's not... And it's just... I mean, you can hear the investigation failing to start in this interview. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So sadly, so Charles dies... It isn't much longer that the kids disappear, which then really ramps the story into the stratosphere, because this is, like you said, when kids go missing and the way Lori behaved with those missing children is what shifted the story to being uncomfortable and, uh, you know, adults to something completely different. So walk us through that. OK, so what actually happens next is that Chad's wife, Tammy, is found dead. And Chad sort of says, oh, she, you know, she was relatively healthy again in her 40s. I believe she was like training for a marathon or something. And, you know, when the coroner shows up, Chad says, oh, she was like coughing last week. So I'm like not surprised she's dead now. And somehow nobody, again, asks any questions about this. They say, do you want an autopsy? He says, no, thank you. And I'd like to bury her as soon as possible. So that happens. Then, you know, we have people who have told us at the funeral, he's like, you know, it's like days or weeks later and he's talking about how he's got to move on with his life and he's already somehow met someone and he's also very excited about he's going to get all this money from her insurance. Again, everyone's like, cool. Then Lori moves to Rexburg with her kids and shortly after that, they disappear. And, you know, she tries to cover her tracks for a bit. She tells JJ's school that she's going to homeschool him. Plausible. She tells other friends uh, that Tylee's at college. Uh, Tylee was a little young to be at college. And also, like, why would she, you know, she was supposedly at BYU. Like, why would she not be living at home? And all of these questions. Um, but, you know, again, people, people's minds never leapt to the worst possible conclusion. Um, so the kids are gone. At some point, JJ's grandparents in particular become extremely concerned that they haven't been able to get in touch with him. They have maintained an extremely close relationship to JJ. They're used to talking to him all the time. Now, all of a sudden, Lori cannot produce him. 
So eventually they call the police, they do a wellness check. We hear tape of this in the podcast where the police show up. Hi. Hi. Lori. Lori, I'm Lieutenant Ball. They say that they're to see JJ and just make sure he's okay. And Lori says, JJ is with my friend, Melanie. Who's the friend he's with? My friend, Melanie. And I don't know why everyone keeps bothering me. And she has a bit of a hissy fit about how everyone's making her life difficult. So I look like a suspect, but I am not a good person. Raised all of my kids. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do in life. But everyone is causing me trouble. And the police leave. And then shortly after that, Chad and Lori go to Hawaii where they get married on a beach. We have seen the pictures. They are ridiculous. Lori is wearing this like flowing white gown. Chad is wearing this like, you know, Cuban shirt, strumming a ukulele. And it is the most bizarre of, of all the cognitive dissonance in this story. That might be the most bizarre. They have just been, or they have just, according to authorities, dispatched with Lori's husband, Chad's wife, and her two children. And they are on a beach in Hawaii pretending like they don't have a care in the world. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. When do the authorities start to say, hey, wait a second, we need to talk to you. JJ's not at your friend's, Tylee's not at school. When does that happen? JJ's grandparents, in particular Kay, Charles's sister, start to put a lot of pressure on police. They will not accept that JJ is just unavailable. He's seven, you know, get him on the phone. You know, I want to see him. Um, so they put a lot of pressure on police. Also, at some point, the um, relationship between Lori and Chad and their friend Melanie Gibb, who Lori has told authorities has JJ, falls apart. And there's this really great recorded phone call. Melanie Gibb recorded it that we also have in the podcast where basically Melanie Gibb is trying to get information out of Chad and Lori. Hello, sweet Melanie. Hi, Chad. Hey, Lori. She doesn't know where they are. All she knows at this point is that they've implicated her. And she is now becoming incredibly concerned that something very bad has happened. We now know that it has. We now know at this point the kids are dead. And so she's trying to extricate information from them as they continue trying to cover their tracks. They, for asking questions, accuse her of being in league with essentially like dark forces. It's a very bizarre phone call. But you can really tell that this is basically Melanie Gibbs' sting operation. Well, I was wondering why you told the police why he was with me. <laughs> and she's extremely worried that her association with these people is going to get her into incredible trouble. Because we also, and through that phone call, but also the media starts to catch up on it. And then they start to look into Lori and Chad's beliefs. And that's when we start to hear about zombies and we start to hear about the end of the world. So... 
tell us more about what we now know they believed. So I think Chad has always been on the fringes of Mormonism. I think Lori was a lot more uh, mainstream before she made this turn around the time of her marriage to Joe Ryan and she started going to Temple more often. She was just looking for more answers. Chad has been asking questions for a long time. He was sort of this like, like very, I think I've referred to him before as like a side hustle guru. Like he kind of had a day job, but then on the side, he also told people what was going to happen during the apocalypse. And so we now know that there, there's a there's a very conventional belief in Mormonism that um, the second coming will arrive, that Jesus will return. And before Jesus's return, the world will be plunged into chaos, um, fires, like droughts, like every tragedy you can imagine will ensnare the earth. But for a small number of people, the righteous, um, there will be mass death. And so there are a lot of missing answers in mainstream Mormonism, such as like, when is this going to happen? And what am I supposed to do other than pray, you know? And so people have been gravitating to more extreme incarnations of Mormonism, where people really address these questions head on, such as things like preparing the people. What Chad did was, he was part of that group where he was asking questions about, um, the end of the world, essentially, and and also creating these scenarios of what that might look like, signs people needed to watch for. Um, but he also increasingly was styling himself as a kind of God. You know, he for a long time had said that he had these almost supernatural abilities, that he could see through what he called the veil into the past, like through past lives, that he could see into the future, that he knew what was coming. Um, he had two near-death experiences early in his life, and he said those sort of gave him these powers. And he talks about being, in his books, about being a younger man and having conversations with dead relatives. So this has been part of his narrative for a long time. What really starts to ramp things up is when he and Lori meet, he identifies a date for the end of the world, and it is July 2020. So it is coming, and it's coming fast. And he tells Lori... The two of them have been married in a previous life. They are meant to be together for eternity. And not only that, they are both part of this group of righteous. They are both gods. And it is their job as spiritual warriors to prepare for the return of Christ and to help rid the world of evil spirits. And this is where the idea of the zombies comes in, that Chad can identify people's spirits as light or dark. Um, and then at a certain point, he starts to decide that Tylee and JJ are both dark spirits and need to be expelled. And we know now uh, what he did, but while the kids were still missing, Lori didn't, she was this very strange character where she would not help the police. That was part of the frustration. That was actually part of what kept this story in the headlines for so long was her response to her missing children. Yeah. And again, I think this comes back to, um, you know, the fascination with the story and our expectations for mothers. Honestly, I remember the first time I heard about this story. And the thing that clicked in my head first was the idea 
that there's a mother whose two children are missing and she refuses to cooperate with authorities. I mean, that can only be something terrible, right? There was no world in which that was innocuous. And, you know, some people who are close to Lori had said, oh, well, we were hoping, you know, she's become obsessed with like doomsday and prepperism. We were hoping maybe the kids were just in a compound somewhere. But it was very clear very quickly that she was implicated in something really terrible. Um, And even after the media located her in Hawaii, the police started questioning her. They gave her a deadline to produce Tylee and JJ, which she blew through. And then they arrested her and um, extradited her back to Idaho. She has remained relatively tight-lipped. And I've talked to multiple relatives, including relatives that have talked to Lori since her arrest. And, you know, she's not saying anything to them either. You know, uh, she has consistently said that no harm has come to JJ and Tylee. And some people have interpreted that as, you know, just her strategic position. And other people have associated it with this idea that she and Chad had that the kids were zombies. And based on that narrative that they developed, the idea was that if if someone you love has become a zombie, that means their body, their soul has been taken over by a dark force. And the only way they can be at peace, the only way they can ascend to heaven is by killing the body. And so people have interpreted this idea that the kids are fine, the kids are well, Lori says this over and over, to this belief that she had no choice but to end the children's lives in order to release them from you know this, the agony of, of limbo. But, you know... There's that, and that doesn't entirely comport with the rest of her behavior, with the covering of her tracks, with the stealing of the kids' social security money. I mean, there were just so many other egregious things she did. It's it's hard to give her the benefit of the doubt that she truly believed she was acting in the kids' best interests. Yeah. If she believed it, she would tell it right away and and live with and be open about it. And they because they do eventually find the children, correct? In 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 a terrible circumstance. They do find the children in terrible circumstances. And um, at some point, they are tracking cell phone data, you know, and they become, the authorities become very interested in Lori's brother, Alex, who's a weird, at first seemingly a weird fringe player in all of this. He seems to be part of this group of Chad Daybell fanatics. He seems to have followed Lori down this rabbit hole, um, but no one quite knows exactly how involved he is in any of this. And then the police really zoom in on him as essentially an executioner, the person who has carried out all of the really awful things that Lori and Chad perhaps did not want to get their hands dirty with. So they track his cell phone. It's pinging off towers uh, right around the time they suspect the kids were taken. You know, they narrow down the kids' whereabouts to like a weekend. They look at the cell phone data and they find that Alex spent a bunch of time that weekend, or there are two separate weekends, but um, I think it's the weekend JJ went missing. They narrow down the the location to Chad Daybell's house. And so they start digging. And in digging in a location right next to Chad Daybell's pet cemetery in this sort of semi-rural area of Rexburg, they find the body of JJ. And he is covered in a plastic sheeting, his hands and his feet bound in duct tape. Um, And they find 
the remains of Tylee and she, her body has been badly burned and uh, most of it is in a plastic bucket and uh, they ultimately, you know, are able to identify that it's those two kids. The fact that it's uh, on Chad Daybell's property is incredibly damning um, and, you know, I think obviously a lot of people suspected that this would be the eventual outcome, that the kids were not somewhere safe, but obviously this this eventuality really, really, really hits hard for everyone who loved JJ and Tylee. And over time, Chad is charged with the killing of his wife, Tammy, and they do change Charles's death to murder as well, correct? Correct. So authorities really start revisiting um, these versions of events. So they exhume Tammy and uh, they do an autopsy and they determine that she most likely died of uh, not natural causes, but asphyxiation. And they also um, look at the Charles Vallow case again and decide, well, actually, this is incredibly suspicious, especially given the sequence of events. So they have definitely charged Lori in Arizona, but Chad, who will be tried next year, I believe next April, has been charged with the murders of Tammy, murders or conspiracy to commit murder uh, on Tammy, JJ, and Tylee. Um, and Lori was recently convicted of the murders of uh, murders or conspiracy to commit murders of Tammy, JJ, and Tylee. And Alex hasn't been charged because Alex died too. Yes. Alex's death has been the subject of so much speculation because, again, it's just yet another highly suspicious event in a sequence of suspicious events. So shortly after Tammy dies, um, Alex has some sort of emergency event at home. Um, uh, he passes out and eventually dies. And it was declared a pulmonary embolism. Um, but there are a lot of questions about the timing of his death. You know, he was in his early 50s. He didn't appear to be a picture of health, but he was also just in his early 50s. He didn't seem to have many pre-existing health conditions that people knew about. Um, but it was very suspicious that he is believed to have been essentially Laurie and Chad's bag man. And now he too was out of the way. When you're working on this story, so much of it, I, I remember this too, was just like, like you were mentioning before, sort of one shocking thing after the other. I mean, who, have you ever worked on a story where it just feels like you think, oh, this is the height of evil or this is as bad as people can get. And then it just goes further. I mean, this was a pretty unique one. I think um, there were just so many different intersecting elements to this one. I think the level of depravity was extreme. The number of bodies and in like different circumstances, um, you know, trying to trying to fuse together the various players and their roles in this. It's a really, I mean, what's interesting about this is it is really depraved and awful and tragic, but it's also incredibly complicated. Like there are so many details to parse. It's not straightforward. And, you know, I kind of realized by the end of working on this, I, a part of the reason I'm drawn to these stories is that like 
this kind of unexpected asocial human behavior is so interesting to me. I really think, though, if you put all the pieces of the story on a table and tried to, you know, put a puzzle together, some of the pieces would fit. But it, the overall picture, you'd get a picture. The overall picture would not point to, oh, sure, and then that's why they killed their kids. You know, I think there's still just this fundamental unknowability to it. Like you really can't, as complicated and fascinating and depraved as it is, you can't fully get into their heads and figure out why these people made the choices that they made. And, you know, I think there are other cases that are more straightforward where you sort of look at the incentives and you say, ah, okay, you know, like I wouldn't have made the same choices, but I can see, I can see it there on paper. You know, it's more like math. But I think in this case, it just, it's just still so fundamentally weird. So much of it still doesn't make sense. You know, they, one of the things that has really stuck out, I think, for a lot of people is the killing of the children, the killing of anybody. But, you know, there were people who would have been happy to step in and raise those children. You know, JJ's grandparents would have taken him in a heartbeat. Kylie, you know, Lori has lots of family who would have taken Tylee in. There's no question. Um, so then the question is, did they really believe they were zombies? Were they killing them over the hundreds of dollars in social security they got every month once they dispatched with them? It's a question we can't answer. We can only guess at. And it's, yeah, it's really horrific. It's, it's, I think, I think we sort of get at some of the motivations of people who do things like this. I don't think we ever really fully answer the question of how things like this happen. But I think that that's also part of what keeps people drawn to true crime. There's no one answer. There's no clear, there's a no clear singular way of looking at this. It's it's a mess. It's complicated. And people are fundamentally a mystery, especially when they do things like this. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we do on this show, on this podcast. And I'm grateful for you joining us because I feel like there is always the question about what draws people to stories like this, both those of us who work in the collection of information and those of us who care and listen. But there's always that way to add to it, which is about who we are, how we get to those places and why some people cho choose paths while others don't. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's it. I think I think people like a mystery. They're also abhorred by a mystery. But I think this is these are fundamentally larger questions about human nature. Right. And they're as much about us as they are about other people. They're about the people we know. I think one of the other things that always comes up with these things is this question of cognitive dissonance when it comes to the people around us. You know, only Charles really understood how dangerous Lori was. Nobody else really thought she would ever harm her children. And I think this is a perpetual theme that um, pops up in these things where uh, we are blinded to the capacities of other people because we sort of need to be in order to operate in the world. But it's um, obviously sometimes can have incredibly deadly consequences. Absolutely. Okay, Sarah, thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kathleen. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. 
You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcast True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager and Arif Narani is the Director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.